I'm glad we're together. I, I really am, and I'm, I'm not sure what miracle is going to happen or started to happen as you were praying just now. But I, I really believe this. I really mean this when I say, please tell us about it. You who are live streamed from lots of places, I, I'm so grateful um, that, you're, that you're part of us in some way. And I, and I pray that it will be a, a game changer and, um, and nothing less than that for you. Uh, it fits right into my message today as well. I was thinking so much about a church and um, my title says it all, you know, it's, it's kind of an expression. That's a great church. How many have ever thought that about a church you attend? You just go, oh, that's a great church. And uh, a lot of hands going up. And, and um, I just got to, I, I don't want to blow your bubble, but there's no such thing as a perfect church. There. <laughs> I said it. <laughs> Um, and I'm not the first one to admit it either. Um, Billy Graham comes to mind, and he was remembered for a lot of things, but his candor when he said very simply, if you find a perfect church, don't join. You'd spoil it. You know, Graham wasn't taking shots at people. He just was admitting the obvious, right? And, and, and some have, in fact, given up searching for a perfect church. They've said, I, 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 there's no such thing out there. Um, but they haven't settled for less. They've just gone away. They've just said, the heck with it. They'll say it stronger in some cases. Uh, but Chuck Colson gave a hilarious answer uh, to someone who told him they avoided church because all Christians are hypocrites. You heard that one? Okay, so uh, this person says this to Colson, and he answered, sure, probably so. Why don't you come in and join us? You'll feel right at home. <laughs> that is just a joke, you understand, right? It was true. He actually said that. Um, because I know you can. some of you can whip out Matthew 23, and there's like nine times Jesus said, you scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites. So we get it. There's, there's hypo Hypocrisy isn't cool. But would you concede if you're one of them that says, I don't, got, I don't got any interest in the church because it's full of hypocrites, would you at least allow for the possibility that there are a few exceptions? I, I, I hope that's it's not true what you're thinking, that it's full of hypocrites. Um, I'm just saying, because I'm not, I'm not sure I share that view. Um, so since no church is perfect, I want to change up my question at the beginning here. And I want to switch it to something more connected to all of us. Um, what makes your church, our church, special? Okay, just, just take that thought. And start to filter it through your experience, your impressions. Um, and, and what is it that makes our church special? We do a lot uh, here at Grace Point that's behind the scenes. Some of my favorite things are life groups where people gather in small groups all over the area. And they do it weekly and they go deeper than I can possibly go. Unless my sermon time is, is longer than allowed. But... 
Um, anyway, the point is there's a lot deeper things that need to happen in your life and my life. It's true of all of us. So I want to encourage you to take this question. What makes our church, if you're not part of Grace Point yet, what, let me talk to you out there someplace. What makes your church special? And while you're working on your answer, uh, let me just say a bias of mine. Maybe um, uh, it would be a good question to ask, uh, that's right, Jesus, right? Because he's the head of the church, the Bible says. And so he's probably, uh, there's no one better than him to consult when it comes to what makes a church special. I think it's a fair question. And by the way, I, I like the fact that the very first church, um, freshly birthed by the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2. So if you're brand new with us, we use the Bible, and there's a Bible tucked away in chair racks all over the room if you didn't bring your own version. But in Acts chapter 2, this is, I'm calling it the first church. It's been called the early church, but I don't know, some of you go to church at night, so it confuses you. So... It's the first church. There was, accurately said, no church before this church that we're going to read about and that we're going to sort of journey with in the season ahead. And it was freshly birthed. We covered that recently, and we'll keep coming back to it, by the Holy Spirit. And it had some standout practices. Not that they eventually learned. These are things that they did from the beginning because the inventor of this thing called church says, do these things. And you'll be not just a good church. You'll be a great church. Not a perfect church because there are people in it. But you'll be a great church. All right? So if you're in Acts 2, I want you to, to get started. I want you to connect three dots. I will read three verses right now. This is sort of helping you step into the study for this morning. I'm going to read three verses. Listen very carefully. Avoid all distractions and see if you can connect these dots. Okay, the first dot is in verse 21 of chapter 2. And you'll notice, if you were here before, you'll notice that this is the last portion of Peter's quotation of a previous apostle named Joel. And in verse 21, he says, Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So that's dot number one, all right? Now, look across the page, at least in my Bible, it's across the page in verse 40. With many other words, this is after Peter finished preaching, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. All right, one more dot, that's the second dot. Drop down to the last verse of chapter 2, verse 47. They praised God and enjoyed the favor of all the people, and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Did you connect them? What is it? Give up? Salvation is the starting point. Salvation is the starting point when it comes to becoming and belonging to a great church. It was true for them. It's still true now. Why, why am I saying, you're saying, Pastor, come on, it's wrong. Here's why. I go to Costco, but I never gave my soul to Costco. I have, uh, I, I've been in the slowest line at Costco, so have you. 
right? Waiting your turn. It was yesterday. I'm not going to name names. I'm not even going to tell you which checker. But there had to be a union break halfway through the line because it was a half hour. I stood there, and the guys behind me are going, for real? I love Costco, by the way. Right? I do. But, but it's, not a, it's not a community like this. It's a membership discount wholesale store. That's why I go there. I'm Scottish. I'm cheap. Okay? So, it's the deal. This is different than that. This involves something of your soul. Costco demands nothing but money from me. You're right, right? Too much. In fact, I've tried methods. I drive, I walk, walk through the store, and Debbie's like, where's the cart? Aren't you getting a cart? I go, no, no cart. You know why. And you know also it doesn't work because halfway through you're going, okay, okay, find a cart, Debbie, find a cart. Can't do it. So anyway, all right, so, so <laughs> this is really fun. And that really did happen yesterday. But anyway, salvation is the starting point. People were coming to faith. We read it three times in Jesus Christ. And as a result, a baby was born, a baby church. Uh, so let's make sure we're on the same page when it comes to the starting point, salvation. Let me ask a question. I'll ask it slowly. You can write it down. What takes place when someone is saved? For some of you, there's no more important question to answer. Some of you have already answered it, and you're, you're in. You walk with Jesus. You know Jesus. You're saved. What takes place when someone is saved? Uh, I'm just going to give you, I'm going to click them off quickly, five different things that take place. Okay? The first two are in verse 38. They're at the end of Peter's message. He's winding it down here. And this would be the first one. Um, God forgives repentant sinners because of Jesus Christ. Verse 38, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. That is the formula, if you want to call it a formula. That opens the gates of heaven to you. So the starting point, what, what's, what takes place when you are saved, when you cry out to the Lord he forgives you a repentant sinner. And he does so not because you're a good guy and the guy next to you isn't, but because of his son, that's why he says Jesus Christ. Okay, that's the first. Here's the second quickly. God at that moment of repentance from a sinner does something absolutely stunning. Some of us are still learning about the second point, that he gives his Holy Spirit to all who are saved. That's why verse 38 says that. You will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So those two are in this passage. I want to go a step further and just tell you that there's a ton of stuff that goes on when somebody calls out to the name of the Lord. Uh, basically verse um, 21 that we quoted earlier. It's in Romans 10, 13. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord, men, women, young people, 
male, female, doesn't matter. It's whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So this is the third thing going on. God opens the eyes of spiritually blinded people when they surrender to Jesus. You say, well, no, I'm not blind. The Bible says, um, actually, you don't know how blind you are spiritually. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4. You can write this down, okay? So 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4 says, The God of this world, Satan, has blinded the eyes of the unbelieving so that they cannot see the light of the glory of the gospel of Christ. So when you come to Jesus, scales come off your eyes. Um, I have a flight attendant daughter who's learned to sleep in, in weird places at weird times as she lays over in different cities. And her secret, she wears these, like, this, these, this, this thing that completely blacks out any light, right? And then, and, and, and the Bible's saying just the opposite. You have that on you, and when you come to Jesus Christ, the mask, the eyes, the covering is removed, and you go, whoa, I didn't know how bright it could be. That's the third thing, okay? So God opens the eyes of the spiritually blind. Fourthly, God breaks the chains of enslaved sinners. You say, wow, chains, what's that about? Well, Paul was explaining this much later to Timothy. And he's given him some parting words. It's his last letter, 2 Timothy. And at the end of chapter 2, he says this. Listen to this. God will grant repentance leading sinners to the knowledge of the truth, and they will come to their senses and escape the trap of the devil. It's big. It's way bigger than we tend to think. Escape the trap of the devil because he's held them captive. It gets worse. To do his will. So I hear people say, now that I turn to Jesus, it's like the shackles are gone. I can go all in for Jesus. Explain that. I just did. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 24 to 26. All right? You were bound spiritually. The one who has uh, bound you, bounded you, um, is, is his, you've been set free. Here's a fifth. God delivers people from the devil. Colossians chapter 1 Verse 13 says, for he has rescued us from the, <clears throat> from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of his beloved son. That's what happens in salvation. So clearly a lot of, a lot of things take place when someone is saved. Great things. Consequential things. Um, so, so it's a starting point that's critical. That's how this church began. Um, you and I are now ready to hear what the Apostle Paul says as to how to be saved. And then we too have a, a choice that every human's ever had to embrace or to shun the truth.
say, I, I want that. Or maybe no thank you. Or there's some, Acts 17, we'll get to them later, who said, that's kind of intriguing, makes sense, but I'm not convinced yet. I need some time. That's a risky proposition, but some choose it anyway. So verse 38, Look, let, let me just read 38 and 9 again. Uh, this is in response, we left last week, to the question, what shall we do? He's done with his sermon, and people are sitting there going, oh, my goodness, what do I do? And in response to the question in verse 37, he says, well, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the Holy Spirit. We've mentioned that. This promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off and for all whom the Lord our God will call. All right? Some quick points here. What word starts that section? Verse 38. Repentance. That's where it starts. Indeed, that's where salvation occurs. It's where a sinner says, I'm calling the shots. I'm in charge. I don't need a Lord. And he or she says, that, that was folly. That did not take me in a direction of life and a hope for eternity. That is darkness. So verse 38 begins, and it explains simply repentance. It means to turn away, to have a change of mind, Okay? And you know, you're, um, some of you are retracing your memory of when you met Jesus Christ. Others don't have a story to tell yet. But you go back and you go, you know what? I was cruising along and I hit the brakes. More correctly, the Holy Spirit got in the way and hit the brakes. And something strange happened to me and I found myself wanting to abandon that path. You know what I'm talking about? That was dumb. It was death, and I was on it. And you said, i got to stop. i got to go another way. And so, uh, authorized by the Holy Spirit, unlike Oregon, we don't do U-turns here unless otherwise indicated. The Holy Spirit says, do a U-turn quick. Stop going there, come to your senses, and reverse course. And that's what's happening in repentance. And in the process, the Holy Spirit says, you know something? You were party city. And suddenly you're looking at that and going, that was not good. Hours before it was cool. What just happened? The Holy Spirit says, let me give you the proper definition of where you were going. It's a four-letter word, dead, dead. So repentance isn't just feeling bad for what you've done. In fact, it's way bigger than that. It gets a bad uh, rap when we say, yeah, just, just say you're sorry. Do you think Jesus died on a cross to hear me say, yeah, hey, Jesus, just uh, want to make sure you heard, hey, I'm really sorry. And then just keep cruising? No. No, it's repentance is is not just feeling bad for what you've done wrong. If it was, 
then Judas is in heaven today. Do you realize that? If Judas' story turned out fine, because there's no one's going to dispute. Did he feel bad? You better believe it. Did he, did he feel like, oh, no, what did I do? This is terrible. Threw the money he got paid, the, the, the silver, threw it away. Went out and killed himself. He was remorseful, but he wasn't repentant. You can read his story in Matthew 27. Just take a look again and see if you detect the same thing. So repentance is required, we're told in Peter's words, of every one of us. That means your repentance is not transferable to your spouse or what every one of us wants for our kids. They've got to repent. Just like I had to repent. And you. So repentance is salvation. It is the moment where the transaction takes place. Uh, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, all is new. 2 Corinthians 5.17 happens at that moment of repentance. The second word then takes on different meaning than, we, than some people have given it. Repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus, for the forgiveness of sin. So baptism comes on the heels, does in the text, of repentance. It's to be done as an expression of what God just did in this moment of salvation, of being John 3, born again. It's my response to what he has done when my repentance happened. My baptism is not a condition, therefore, of salvation. It is, in fact, a, a response to being saved. Uh, there's more. Hold on. Receive the Holy Spirit. We'll come back in just a second. Next statement is you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This isn't describing a possibility like stay, saying like you may receive the Holy Spirit. The moment of repentance, the Holy Spirit comes in and goes, that path was not a good one. I got to go a new direction. You turn, right? Change a heart, right? That's the Holy Spirit. And he's, it's not a matter of you may receive the Holy Spirit. No, look at the words. My Bible says it plainly. You will receive the Holy Spirit. He will come in. He doesn't kick down the door because you repented. You said, I'm messed up. This has not given me life. I'm changing it up here. And the Holy Spirit says, oh, good. Thanks for opening the door. Um, and the Holy Spirit isn't for a few. He's for all. For all. Um, Peter's sermon is clearly calling attention to the connection between repentance and baptism. Baptism uh, gets its spiritual significance from the death 
burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So if you're wondering, why is baptism a big deal in the church? Well, because Jesus is a big deal. And his death, burial, and resurrection is the biggest deal of all. So if you keep searching for what's the, what's the end game here, it's that we will connect to the one who conquered death so we too can conquer death and live forever. Amen? That's, that's the good news here. Listen to these words in Romans chapter 6, and they're just a couple of verses, but they give the meaning that, that Peter's drawing out and Paul draws out. When we were joined with Christ Jesus in baptism, we joined him in his death, Romans 6, 3 and 4. For we died and we were buried with Christ by baptism. That's why we call attention to it when we have baptisms. We say that's what's happening here, is people have died to themselves. They've repented and they've turned to Jesus and the path is new. They're, 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 the symbolism of baptism is death, burial, and then the resurrection. And he ends his description by saying, so that we might live new lives. So it's a beautiful picture. I hear it from people all the time that get baptized. They go, I come out of the water and I just feel like I am brand spanking new. And I'm like, you are. Now get your mask on. No. <laughs> um, so let me, let me repeat it because there's confusion out there. Baptism does not save people. But it does serve as a picture of a person who has repented of their sin and been born again. That's what baptism is. That's the role it plays. So I can't go on without asking you a question. Have you repented of your sin? Your answer is important, and Jesus is the one interested in it. Uh, have you been born again? And have you been baptized? We've made that trivial. And that's not, that's, not, that's not the picture of somebody says, I was going to hell. And now I'm heading to heaven. I want to tell everybody. I want to show everybody. I want to do what Jesus said to do and be baptized and, and make a statement to all. So if you haven't, please call us. We're going to move the decorations out real soon. We're going to keep that tank warm. All the time. Because we want, we want that to happen. God wants that to happen. This would not be a point in the Bible if it wasn't a priority in the Bible, right? You haven't been baptized? You're not sure all about it? You call. You reach out to the office, and we'll sit down with you and go, hey, here's what's happening. Promise I won't keep you underwater for more than, like, 30 seconds or so. <laughs> Just a joke. Okay. All right. Um, so, apparently... Despite a powerful message, and I think the Holy Spirit's leading the way here today, but in Peter's day, a really powerful message, some were still doing this. They, they weren't decided. That's why Luke adds this in verse 40. With many other words, he warned them. Look at this. And he pleaded with them, save yourself from this corrupt generation. 
And those who accepted his message were baptized. About 3,000 were added to their number that day. Peter here is preaching it with passion. His sermon ended in verse 37. And then verse 40 comes along and you're going, what? Seems like he's preaching still. No, he's just given a heated appeal. He's given a pastor's due an introduction, exposition, and application. That's what we do. That's what you're hearing today. The application is where it's like reeling the fish. Do you get it? So Peter's going, wait a minute. What I just said is incredibly important. That's why Peter uses words like he was exhorting and he was urging and he was urgently warning these people, pleading with these people to receive salvation. What you are reading in verse 40, with many other words, he warned them, pleaded with them, save yourself from this corrupt generation. There's an intensity that you're supposed to hear in those words. Why? Because elsewhere in the Bible it says salvation came dang close to you and you blew it off. Don't be that guy. Don't be that person. Realize Jesus is in your neighborhood. Realize the Holy Spirit is knocking on the door of your heart, Revelation 3.20, and he wants you to open it. He will not kick down a door. He doesn't do that. You get to choose to repent and reverse. Making sense? That's why Paul is, or Peter here is urgently saying, there is no optional tone here at all. This is, the house is on fire, flee from the flames, because if you don't, you will die stuff. That's what's being said here. You familiar with the name Corrie ten Boom? A uh, beautiful Dutch woman that hid Jews from the searching Nazi army in World War II. Did beautiful things. Actually, her last years of her life were spent at the church I came from. And she passed into glory in Jesus' presence in Placentia, California. Imagine that, right? But here's, that's just a personal note. Here's the deal about Corrie ten Boom. She asked this. When a house is on fire... And you know that there are people in it. It is a sin to straighten pictures in that house. Ugh. Who does that? You go in and you drag people out any way you can. Because that fire is going to gut the joint. And kill everybody inside. Unless they're out. Who cares about pictures? It's time we stop caring about, well, what if people don't like me? Really? They hated Jesus. I'm not talking about a guy that's impervious to that or, you know, somehow it doesn't stab me when somebody goes, ew, ew. But I care more about what Jesus is saying. Um... It was a big deal um, because 3,000 people were told were added that day. This is what the baby church, the first church, did. They saved souls. By the way, it says at the end of that verse, verse 41, that they were 
3,000 people who accepted his message, repented, and were baptized. It's something that you can blow by, but I'll just tell you as a pastor who's baptized people a lot, we used to do it at Corona Del Mar in Pirate's Cove, California. Sounds exotic, but I just about had hypothermia every time we did it. Because you're in the ocean baptizing tons of people and maybe 30 or 40 people. But they baptized how many? 3,000. I guarantee you this, that pastor's arms, Peter's arms, whoever was doing the baptism here, they were, they were spent. They were, you know, praying prayers like, take me now, Jesus. <laughs> okay. Um, I want you to see this at the end here. That salvation's where it starts. If that message is not clear, we have no potential to be uh, a great church, much less a good church. We just can't. But the Holy Spirit gives us a little feel for this new family and how they function. And it picks up in the last six verses, and we don't have to go into detail except to note it. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the miracles. Now you know why I prayed at the beginning, Lord, do a miracle here. I want this church to be loaded with excitement that the Holy Spirit is changing things. He's doing many wonders and signs are being performed. All the believers were together, verse 44, and had everything in common. They sold their property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day, they continued to meet together in the temple. Today, the average church-going American will go to the temple once every three to four weeks. And we wonder why we've fallen to this place. What explains it? Well, I don't know if this is a complete answer, but every day they did these things together. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. What's that mean? People out there. And notice, he ends again. The Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Teaching, fellowship, breaking of the bread, which is worship, and prayer. All of these things were going on in this early church. I want to give you a description of fellowship. You know teaching. In fact, he says teaching of the apostles. What was that? Well, it was, it was the people that followed Jesus around. They had three years of taking notes on his life. But that's, that's not everything. In the last night, Jesus was with his disciples before he went to the cross early the next day. It says that he explained how the Holy Spirit in John 14, verse 26, the Holy Spirit would come and he, I want you to hear this, it's really cool, and he would... Uh, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. So when you read that the apostles taught, they're taught or they're, they're sharing 
things with people that the Holy Spirit gave to them, and he's bringing it back to their mind to say, i got to share this with her. She needs to hear this. He's, he's, he's asking that question. I know how to answer that question because the Holy Spirit is bringing it back to mind. And if you're one of the apostles, you get to also add to that the fact that you spent 36 months with Jesus Christ. Oh, so cool. And, and you'd have something to say. Teaching and fellowship. Um, this picture is about fellowship. It's a really good one. Um, Chuck Swindoll in a book um, describes this wonderful woman of God, Anne Ortland. Uh, her husband was Ray Ortland, and uh, a very well-known pastor of yesteryear. And um, and and she describes fellowship. She's trying to get what does that mean? The Greek word's koinonias. It's um, it's, it's this idea of community, a close association that involves, get this, mutual interest in sharing. We're not doing koinonia right now because I'm doing all the talking, right? But we'll do koinonia in a couple of minutes when we go next door. And you, a bunch of you will do koinonia when you go to your life group. And you not only share, you hear somebody with a burden share with you. And you go places. This is a great picture. One group is like, this is trying to distinguish those that, that have contact and those who connect. Contact, watch my hands, connect. Contact, we're touching, connect. Okay? Listen to this. One group is like a bag of marbles. They come together in their contact and the contact consists of, if you can see my hands, the, the fingertips are boinking together, right? Uh, there, there's, there's this clacking and clattering, if I could make a sound. But it's not fellowship. We're having contact. Then she adds, the other group is like a bag of grapes. Forget the marbles. It's a bag of grapes. They mix, they mingle, they mush let me just say it. It's messy, right? And imagine that bag of grapes. You shake it, and it's a mess. And you open it up, and you look at life blended together, sharing Jesus. That is Holy Spirit fellowship. Isn't that great? It's a beautiful mess. <laughs> and they did it. And don't, don't miss the last word in that verse, verse 42. It's a simple little word of prayer. It was a big deal. We're never told what they prayed about exactly. We just know that it made, it, it made it some kind of a difference because they found favor. That's what it says in verse 47. Favor with all the people, the unbelievers. That's a thing to pray about. And growth that God added to their numbers daily of those being saved. Isn't that a great summary statement of what the first church did that made them so special? I think it is. Uh, not perfect, just special. 
a gathering of redeemed people. That's what a church is, according to this first church template. A gathering of redeemed people who worship, study God's word, share life together, and then tell others about Jesus. That's, that's a gathering of repentant people where this whole conversation started, who are reborn people fueled by the Holy Spirit and focused on what God can do through prayer and his people. That is not just a good church, it's a great church. Can I tell you as your pastor, I love you people. I, I really do. And, it, and, and you know my heart, I don't have to say this. That's what I aspire to be like. That's what I, I hope our church aspires to be like. This kind of people where God sees it and smiles and his Holy Spirit blesses it and adds to our number daily those who are being saved. Amen? Would you bow with me this morning? Uh, we want that. And God, I'm going to say, I believe you want that. So we pray for that. We pray that you, Holy Spirit, the Spirit of the living God would come and fall afresh on me, on us. As we give ourselves to the practices of people who gave themselves to such in the first church. We don't have to make this stuff up, Lord Jesus. We've just gone back to the source and said, wow, it worked for them. They were healthy, they were whole, and they were, they were fruitful. And we want nothing less than that. So we, we ask you to have your way in us. And I pray that you would give us favor in our world, our friendships, our workplaces, our classrooms, and that we would see harvest, the fruit of harvest brought by you, Holy Spirit. So we respond to you now in praise, in a prayer. Have your way with us. Come fall afresh on us.